Shalom, everyone. I'm senior writer and analyst Harry Enten filling in for David Chalian. This is The Daily DC. If you're like me, you've been stuck in your apartment or house for weeks. And perhaps like me, you're wondering just how gosh darn long are we going to be stuck inside and how bad is this going to be? But to know that, we need to know what the true threat from the coronavirus to the American population is, something that Dr. Fauci has talked about repeatedly, including this morning on CNN. Well, as I've said so many times, Allison, that the virus kind of decides whether or not it's going to be appropriate to open or not. What we're seeing right now are some favorable signs. We would want to see, I would want to see a clear indication that you are very, very clearly and strongly going in the right direction. Because the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to get out there prematurely and then wind up your back back in the same situation. You think that this might be knowable information, but no one seems to truly know. And the models keep changing, as Dr. Fauci said yesterday. I know I sound like a broken record. That's good. I want to sound like a broken record. Let's just keep doing it. I get questions a lot, Dr. Burks and I, about these numbers, the projections that you went with from 100,000, 200,000, now down to 60,000. That's a sign that when, as I keep saying, when you take the data you have and you reinsert it into the model, the model modifies. Data is real. Model is hypothesis. Okay. Why is that? Well, joining me by phone are 538 senior science writer Maggie Kurth and quantitative editor Laura Bronner to help us figure out why. Hi, Maggie and Laura. Hi. Hello. You two were the co-authors on a piece, and I love the title of it, Why It's So Freaking Hard to Make a Good COVID-19 Model. That, of course, was on 538. It's a great piece, and it's really in-depth. So I just want to try and get at a few things here to illustrate why this thing is so, quote-unquote, freaking hard. Um, And so I'll start off with you, Maggie, you know, just a basic sort of question and tell me if this is even crazy. But, you know, there are models right now that are showing that this weekend might be the peak for the virus deaths in the U.S. I mean, just how much stock should we put into that? So the way I have been thinking about these models is the way that I think about scientific research papers when I'm reporting, that it's not really about what's in a single one. Uh, You know, one paper at a time might be completely and utterly wrong. Each individual model might be completely and utterly wrong. But when you kind of start taking all of these different models done in different ways with different assumptions and you kind of start looking at them in aggregate and seeing where they converge and kind of what they're saying that all kind of comes together, that sort of starts helping you understand something that's closer to the truth. It's still probably not exact, but it starts giving you some idea of like relative trends, relative like understanding of what's going on. Yeah, Laura, you know, it's so funny when I hear Maggie talk about that. I almost think it's almost like poll averaging, right? Oh, there's that outlier poll. You shouldn't just take that outlier poll and run with it. You really should be almost aggregating across different models. Would you agree with me on that one? I mean, I think aggregating helps uh, to a certain extent. I I do think it's important to look at sort of what are the assumptions that these different models are making. If one of them is an outlier, as you say, in a certain direction, is that because perhaps they're assuming that we're all going to social distance for a whole year, for example? I don't don't know if any of them is actually assuming that, but that's just an example of of the kind of thing that could drive a different kind of result. and yeah, I mean, I, I think that the poll, ag- poll averaging example is an interesting one. 
the thing with poll averaging, as you know, um, is that, you know, you want to be taking all these different things into account. You want to be uh, incorporating sort of how good is the pollster? Like, what do we know about that pollster's performance going back historically? Um, does the pollster have house effects? Um, what kind of, how are they asking their questions? Are, are there other things that we should know about how the pollster, about the pollster's methodology that might affect how we treat their poll in the average. And I think that that's kind of exactly what we don't know yet about these models and why averaging them or sort of aggregating them in a way is is particularly hard. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you mentioned house effects and that's just so funny. You know, for folks who aren't, you know, big poll readers, although if you're listening to this podcast, you might be, it's essentially like, oh, certain uh, pollsters have more Democratic-leaning results. Some have more Republican-leaning results. Here, we just don't have the history to really base that off of, so who really knows? You know, Maggie, I, I, one of, you know, if we just take a step back here for a second, on the most basic level, I believe there are like three variables you pointed on your piece that we need to understand to know how many people are going to die from this. You know, it's the susceptible population, the infection rate, and the fatality rate. Is there, do you mind just kind of walking us through those and sort of why those, that, that sounds easy to me, but it really isn't, right? Right. I mean, so the fatality rate, I think, is uh, a really good example of why this starts getting complicated, where it's just like complication upon complication, build upon complication. Um, so to get the fatality rate, you need to know how many people are infected and how many people have died from that infection. But we don't actually have comprehensive testing in the United States um, for many, many reasons. And the lack of that means we don't actually know how many people are infected. So anytime we're trying to do that calculation, we're making some assumptions and some guesswork based on other countries and like what we think might be going on here. But you also start looking at then comparing between those other countries. There's not necessarily a good reason for comparison because mm. you have very different populations that have different age demographics and disease demographics. And there's been different responses by different governments to what's going on. And then you get to the other side of that equation of, you know, how many people have died. And we don't actually know that either because there have been cases of underreporting where, you know, we couldn't test the dead bodies either. So we don't know whether somebody died of COVID or not. Um, there's also been some of those credible reports out of China where they might be underreporting their death rates. So there's a lot of that stuff where we kind of are... It's not, it's not just like, nobody's not just pulling the number out of the air, right? It's, it's legitimate numbers, but they're all based on assumptions and the assumptions are based on assumptions. And it just goes down and down and down until like, you know, you kind of have to take some of it with a grain of salt. You know, there's these great charts that are on this piece, and I really suggest you read the piece, whereby the charts just get more and more expansive, right? You know, I said, let's start on the most basic level. And then, mm. you know, that's three, and then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it's almost exponential, that becomes six, that becomes, you know, it's, the whole thing is so crazy. But, you know, one thing that you hit on there, Maggie, uh, that I want to bring up to you, Laura, is that sampling just seems to be so important here. You know, we hear all this about testing, 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 and Am I correct in assuming that until we get all these tests that we really aren't going to be able to model this thing to any great way and we won't be able to make good public health decisions until we get the testing so we can actually sample what the heck is going on here? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are sort of um, 
two things which I sort of want to address separately. One is this question of can we make decisions and can we make public health decisions without perfect data? And the answer is we obviously have to, right? So, I mean, I, I, th I think that <laughs> decisions have to be made even without, oh. <laughs> without like, you know, the testing that we would want. It's obviously harder to make those decisions if you don't actually know what's going on. Um, and that that's the thing that, yeah, I mean, ideally we would, you know, want to test sort of the whole population, you know, in an ideal world, we would want to test the entire population every two weeks or something. And we would want to, you know, an antibody test. So we wouldn't just know if people currently have uh, the virus or if they've ever had it, right? So we would want some kind of full... Uh, full test of everything and to be able to track how that is how that is changing sort of week by week. That's obviously not possible. Um, I think currently we're not anywhere close to that. We're, we're not even anywhere, you know, sort of useful. And I think that um, there are there are places where people have have tried to test more of the population um, in Iceland. Uh, They're trying to test, I think, people who volunteer um, so they're they're random, or I think they're sampling among people who volunteer for a test, even if they don't have symptoms. Um, in Austria, they just uh, did a study um, of I think around two thousand people, where they randomly sampled people and tried to test them to try and get like some understanding of how of what the prevalence in the population is. Obviously, uh, there are you know huge confidence intervals on that, as you would expect uh, with a, a small study like that, but. Um, there are ways to try and get a more systematic understanding of what's going on um, in in the population. The issue is in the United States, the way that tests are being done right now is very far from that. We know that um, a very non-random set of people is being tested. We know the people who are tested are, are largely people who are very sick. Uh, people who, in some places, it's only people who are hospitalized get a test. Um, and so that will skew your results because that will mean that you end up with more of the people you test being positive than if you just tested a random uh, and possibly asymptomatic set of the population. I've heard some feedback from readers that like, well, these models are all wrong and they've been proven. You guys just proved them all incorrect and now they're not performing the way that they thought they were going to perform. And I think people are misunderstanding what the purpose of them is also. So like the purpose is not to perfectly predict what's going to happen. It's to give us an idea of under this particular scenario, what might happen. So the fact that they're changing as we've changed our behavior is actually exactly what you'd expect and doesn't mean that they've been proven false. It's not, it's not like predicting the outcome of an election. It's like telling us, you know, if you do X, here's a greater chance of Y happening. Okay, you did X. Now we've got scenario Z. Yeah, I, to me, as I just, you know, read over the article and I listen to you two here, this is such a difficult job. It's not, you know, I, I think my former boss, your current boss, Mr. Nathaniel Silver, you know, ha, ha, he has always said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, polling aggregation is actually fairly easy. And I think you guys made this point. This is a significantly more difficult problem. Um, and I thank you both for joining me here today to help break it down, to help it, to explain it to an audience that might not have ever heard anything quite like this before. So Maggie, Laura, thanks so much for helping us to explain all of this. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
Stats like that and more were covered in an article entitled, quote, How Coronavirus is Deepening American Inequality by our next guest, CNN Politics National Political Writer, Brandon Tensley. Hi, Brandon. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So um, just how great is this disparity, Brandon? I know you had a bunch of stats uh, that you've lined up. Yeah, I'll just read off um, a couple of the stats that I uh, pulled up today uh, just to make this a little less abstract. Uh, So, you know, think about, you know, New York City, for instance, where uh, Latinos account for 34 percent of people who've died of the virus, uh, but make up 29 percent of the city's population. Black Americans account for 28 percent of deaths, uh, but make up 22 percent of the population. Um, But you've seen it. You've also seen it outside of New York. You've seen it in Chicago, where black Americans account for 72 percent of deaths, um, but make up less than a third of the population. And then you've also seen it in, you know, parts of the South, actually throughout many parts of the South. Uh, In South Carolina, for instance, black Americans account for 46 percent of virus related deaths but they uh, make up 27% of the state's entire population. That is so upsetting and depressing. You know, I I myself have been looking, you know, at the zip code maps in New York and you can just see it. You know, Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Riverdale section of the Bronx, which is the Northwest section, which fortunately is a little bit more of an affluent section. You just see that the virus rates there are so much lower than say in the South Bronx, where there's just such a larger percentage of people of color, Hispanics, African-Americans. You know, here's a question I have, and you've written on this. You know, obviously this is intertwined with class and longstanding inequalities, right? Right. How is it exacerbating those? It's sort of building on those, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I think one way to think about this is, you know, whenever you have a sort of uh, calamity like this of this scale, it really just sort of uh, reopens sort of divisions and divides uh, that we've long had in society. Uh, so I think one way is, you know, a few metrics to look at this from is, you know, negative underlying health conditions like hypertension and diabetes, uh, which are more um, common among Black Americans, for instance. Uh, you look at the role of unemployment, um, you know, who's been most affected by these mass job uh, layoffs that we've seen in uh, recent weeks. Um, and in addition to unemployment, there's also, you know, the fact that even if you do keep your job, people of color uh, tend to take the sorts of jobs or have the sorts of jobs that don't allow them to be able to quarantine uh, at home. They're still on the front lines. They're still having to go out and potentially put themselves at risk. You're seeing things like access to quality health care. Um, for instance, you know, to use South Carolina again, you know, living in a state uh, that hasn't adopted the Medicaid expansion uh, you also have uh, housing environments, you know, for instance, living in a multi-generational household where you just have, uh, you know, several people almost like living on top of each other in a way that also makes it difficult to actually distance yourself from somebody who might come in, might have come into contact uh, with the virus or contracted it. Um, and all these things, they interact with, with one another. You know, they're not standalone variables. Um, none of this, I would say, is, you know, it's not chance. It's not coincidence. Uh, this is the result of decades and decades of policy that have made it such that uh, this virus and things like it disproportionately affect uh, people of color and only ramp up the virus's intensity for these groups. Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned about people having to go to work and the unemployment. You know, I've noticed there are all those pictures in New York of the subways in the South Bronx, again, being much more filled than say the subway, the subway stops in, in the North Bronx and the Northwest mm-hmm. Bronx, which obviously uh, a little bit more affluent. You know, one last thing. You know, all this is so depressing. Um, but is there any? So, do you take any silver linings from any of this? 
I do. Um, I, I was actually just talking with um, a medical expert in South Carolina this morning. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, there is the possibility that at the end of all of this, uh, it could force people to sort of wake up to the importance of health equity uh, when we're having uh, conversations about, you know, other types of inequality and how all of these things are interconnected. Um, it's also shown the importance of cross-community cooperation. Um, I had also written a piece, I think, last week that's looking at these unique sorts of partnerships that we're seeing. Um, in, in, in response to the virus. And I think a lot of this, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's incredibly depressing, right? A lot of these partnerships, a lot of this cooperation is having to happen because the federal government stepped in so late. Um, it almost feels like a betrayal, right? That we're having to figure out all these different mechanisms to make up for these gaps in federal assistance. Um, at the same time, they're also revealing just how vital it is that people actually, you know, yes, we have to self-isolate, but also the importance of not totally shutting yourself off um, from your fellow people and your neighbors. Yeah, it's it's so important. Even if we can't be there for our neighbors physically, we still should be there as a community being there for us. We all have to get through this together. That is the way we're going to exactly. get through this. Brandon, I want to thank you for all of that. Uh, thanks for joining us. And a uh, special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. I'll be back on Monday. So until then, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.